You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 96. Why should we be cautious about too much clarity? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. Now, before we get too far into things today, we should probably give you a brief update since uh, it's been our longest break between episodes in the last little over two and a half years. It, it was unplanned. So Drew, what have you been up to? Yeah, David, I, I always feel bad when this sort of thing just drops in there. You know, if we could have scheduled ourselves a two month holiday and it wouldn't have been a problem, but we just sort of like disappeared off the airwaves. Yeah. And from my point of view, it wasn't the end of COVID because COVID is still rampaging everywhere. It was just as some of the restrictions started lifting, some of that other activity that was in the background started flooding back in and people who'd been forgiving for a couple of years now suddenly started expecting things that I'd promised to get delivered and done. So I've been to New Zealand. I got to go and visit Auckland, got to see my first uh, carpet factory and talk to the good folks at Bremworth. I got to see the CityLink rail project and have a bit of a look at the dig there. But we've got some fun projects starting up. I can't really talk about all of the details of them at the moment. Uh, but yeah, we've got researchers back out in the field visiting places and interviewing people and coming up with new stories to tell. Yeah, great. I've been out and about a little bit as well, Drew, but I was uh, talking to one listener, quite a funny story, when I was in the US. And uh, he kind of said to me, every single time he starts listening to one of our podcast episodes, he's just waiting for that episode where Drew goes, this is it. This works do this. Um, so I was going to make a joke when we got onto this episode that, um, you know, we spent the last two months trying to have you find something that you think works. Oh, uh, David, if that was the story, then I'm afraid the answer is still, yeah, we tried really hard, but I'd like to think we do come up with concrete suggestions, at least at the end of every episode of things that people can try and things that people can do that will make their lives better as safety practitioners. But yeah, that, that holy grail of a safety practice that you can just say, yeah, the evidence behind this is no controversy. You should just do this. Um, you're not going to find it. It's the same in teaching. We spend all of our time at universities teaching and learning about teaching and trying to improve our teaching. But there are very, very few things someone can come along and just say, you know, like, here is the hard and fast evidence that this is exactly the way you should do it. Yeah, so we're kind of going to talk about that a little bit in this uh this episode today, Drew. So um, you sort of did the prep work and, and pulled out this paper. So what's um, what's today's question all about? Okay, so this is a listener-suggested paper. And one of the great things about taking a break is that our inbox has filled up with people saying, oh, if you're taking a break because you don't have any papers, here's one you should try. So this one was recommended by listener Perman Sherman. My apologies if I've mispronounced your name, Perman. It resonates a top with a topic that I think about a lot in not just my own teaching. I think it's something I sort of worry about in life more generally, which is how much uncertainty plays a role in what I choose to do and not do. Your uncertainty is something that sort of helps drive people forward, but it's also something that holds people back. And I experience that a lot myself. When it comes to learning, some amount of uncertainty is absolutely necessary. If you think you know the answer to a question, you don't go looking for better answers to that question. So lots of what we do in a classroom is we start off the lesson by provoking the students into discomfort. We get them to recognize the limits of their current understanding. We ask them questions that make them go, huh, hadn't thought about that. Or we give them a problem to solve that their existing tools don't help them solve. And that sort of gets people into that curious learning state of mind. But too much uncertainty is disabling. You know, if you're too uncertain, you become risk averse. You start rejecting new information. You start refusing to take any actions that would add to the amount of uncertainty that you're already facing. And um, you know, this is me after COVID, spending all my time just sitting in my little office where I don't have to go outside, don't have to meet people. You know, there's less into less things just adding to that uncertainty. And I think for all of us, there's a sort of sweet spot where you've got enough uncertainty that you want to go out and find new things but not so much uncertainty that you want to hide in your bubble and stop learning new things. 
Yeah, I like Drew. Um, and we might use how organizations think and respond to incidences, you know, throughout today's episode a few times, because where you said there, if you just, if you think you already know the answer to the question, you don't go looking for better answers. I, I think in one of our earlier episodes on investigation, I think you, you said, Drew, that one of the, I guess, evaluation criteria for an incident investigation may be, you know, how much did the investigator actually learn uh, as, you know, in terms of um, new understanding about that particular situation, as opposed to going into the investigation with an already a view of what, what the answer should be. Yeah, this is something that I say a lot, and we might come back to it later in the episode, David, is this idea that you know, what are investigations for? From an organisational point of view, I think they're often, the accident creates uncertainty. The investigation is trying to remove that uncertainty again. And if it does it in the process by sort of removing the uncertainty by learning a step forward, then that's a good thing. But if it does it just by trying to quickly find an answer, find a label, close off the uncertainty as rapidly and cleanly as possible, that's like preventing a learning rather than creating a learning opportunity. For every complex question, there's a simple answer that's wrong. <laughs> yeah, I like that one. Although I suspect some people would say for every like simple question, there's an academic answer that's complex. <laughs> and I think that that's one of the reasons there's this sort of clash between academic safety people and safety practitioners. You know. So I'm an academic. I get to operate in a world that has a huge tolerance for uncertainty, uh, basically because we never have to take any action. <laughs> All we need to do is research and teach. So we can be as uncertain as we like. And that lets me be as curious as I want to be. And I love it. You know, I can go through every day and someone asks me a question. I can say, hmm, that's a good question. What do you think? And I can get away with that. <laughs> that's what a good teacher does. But if you're a safety practitioner, if you're like safety manager for an organization, you can't respond to questions from your CEO with, hmm, that's a really good question. We should think some more about you. You've got to take action in the world. So you've necessarily, when you're working for an organization, got to have less tolerance for that uncertainty. And sometimes I sort of think that's the useful tension that we have is, you know, it's the job of people like me to go through the world trying to tell people, be a little bit less certain. It's the job of other people trying to find that certainty. And if we have a like positive dynamic, then together we sort of come to a good place in the middle. But otherwise, we've got this sort of risk of too much uncertainty being disabling. And the paper today, which is sort of arguing that that sense of clarity that people are looking for, that that might be a trap. And in particular, he argue, and we'll get into this, he argues that it might be almost like a deliberate trap that some people create, is they offer you this promise of clarity, of feeling like you understand the world that leads you into sort of thought traps. So what we're going to be talking about is sort of evaluating the paper and saying, you know, is that a is is that something we should be worried about? And if we should be worried about it, how should we be worried about it? What should we be doing about it? Yeah, Andrew, there's a few nice parallels to sa the safety science and, and some of the things that we talk about as safety practitioners. So like the opening sentence of this paper is, I'll quote, here is a worrying possibility. There is a significant gap between our feeling that something is clear and our actually understanding it. And for me, I straight away thought of this uh, work as imagine, work as done tension. And I think that's what we're going to go through is, is you know, what's our, what do we think that we know about the world is, uh, and, and how clear is that? And then how does that actually relate to uh, the world itself? So Drew, maybe if I just do an intro to the, to the paper, the, the title of the paper is The Seductions of Clarity. Uh, the author is uh, C.T. Uh, Nguyen. He's Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Utah. From his own bio, uh, he says that uh, he's interested in ways in which our rationality and agency are socially embedded, about how our ways of thinking and deciding are conditioned by features of social organisation. David, I'm interested in what you think about this. The, there is sort of a, a spectrum of philosophers. You know, you've got some philosophers who spend all of their time engaging with the work of other philosophers. So they're in this very sort of abstract thought space. And you, then you get these other philosophers, and I think C.T. Nguyen is in this camp, who spend a lot of time studying the emerging results from other fields. So in this case, like psychology, social psychology, evolutionary psychology. And they think about, okay, what are those implications of empirical results for the philosophy we've established so far? So they're very engaged with other less philosophical research. I mean, I think it's great because often philosophers bring this interesting perspective. 
they think more about other people's research than maybe those people think about themselves. They think, you know, what are the implications of this? What are the categories that are emerging? How are these people actually doing research? It, it gives a really interesting perspective. But also I always worry that there's the risk that they're not experts in the research that they are reporting on. And so we've got to be very careful when they describe empirical research that, you know, this guy is a philosopher. He's not a empirical psychologist. So to what extent is he not deliberately, but sort of accidentally cherry picking or interpreting the results in a way that those results don't actually afford, that the newest new perspective is interesting. But actually, if you ask the original researchers, they'd say, no, you can't interpret it like this. And this is why you can't. Yeah, it's a good point, Drew. I think when we did our safety work, safety of work, we, we borrowed heavily from the institutional work and institutional logics disciplines. And that was definitely new to me. And I spent months and months trying to make sense of the empirical findings and, you know, the different philosophical perspectives in that field, because it was, I mean, as we're going to talk about in a moment, don't even know the journals, don't know the researchers, don't know the the history of the field. So it could have been very easy for us to just take superficial understanding of that body of work and then just do draw some abstract relationships to what we were talking about in safety. Yes, this is more by way of analogy than a direct example. But you see people do the same thing with like quantum physics, you know, people who don't understand physics at all use quantum physics as a metaphor for other things, which is fine if it's just a very, very loose metaphor. But the moment they start making claims about it, that's when you begin to sort of worry that this is pseudoscience. So Drew, this paper was published in the Royal Institute of Philosophy Supplement. So we have definitely not reviewed a paper from that uh, publication before. Do you want to just talk a little bit about... I'm going to go a step further and say that this is not a journal that I've heard of before. Uh, so, so I thought it might be a good opportunity to talk about sort of how you deal with papers in journals you haven't heard of. And so the first thing I do is I use a tool called SciMargo, which is like a journal ranking service. Now, journal ranking is... It's hoodoo stuff. It means nothing really. But it gives you a sense of who in the field considers things to be reputable or not reputable. And at the very least, you search something up in SciMargo and it comes up with like zero hits. You think, oh, okay, what's going on here that this is not even ranked as a journal? So then you go to the homepage and you look at the homepage and look at who publishes it. Oddly enough, you don't check the editorial board because all of the like pseudo journals they give themselves editorial boards with important people who don't even know they've been listed as editors. Yeah, the end, the end result of this process is this, is this is a reputable journal. But what it is, is it's a place that publishes the proceedings of conferences. So the idea is you'll have like an American Psychological Association or Philosophical Association meeting. And then the papers from that meeting will go into a special issue of the Royal Institute of Philosophy supplement rather than into their sort of main heavily peer-reviewed journal. So the takeaway then is, and you remember why we talk about authors and journals, it's not that it tells you whether a paper is good, but it gives you a hint of who's doing the work, what sort of peer review it's getting, and therefore, how well does it represent other work? So, you know, this paper is obviously interesting enough to be published in a conference. It's been presented to other philosophers, but it's never been peer reviewed by, for example, psychologists. So we've got to be careful that a philosopher who is representing the work of psychologists, not being peer reviewed by other psychologists, could make mistakes that never get caught. So we need to be a little bit more careful than usual in checking whether the research that it's using is representative, whether there's other stuff it's missing, whether it's misinterpreting the research that it's applying. We can't just sort of trust the author as much as we would normally trust the author talking about their references. So it never says anything directly negative about the author or their work. It's just about the degree we need to scrutinize it. Yeah, thanks, Drew. So, so we've got this um, paper title, The Seductions of Clarity. Drew, do you want to give us just an overview of the, the overall messages of the paper? And then we'll just kind of go through some of those and create some connections to, uh, to safety management. Sure. So this is a really well-written paper. Um, I'd recommend having a look at it. And like all well-written papers, it tells you up front what the paper is and what the paper does. So Nguyen tells you both in the abstract, in the introduction, you know, here is my overall argument. If you don't believe me, I'm going to extend it and support it through the rest of the paper. So here's sort of the, the, the main sort of claims or points. He says that humans use a sense of clarity as a way to tell us that we've finished thinking about something. So you're sort of confused and then things start to become clear. Okay, I don't need to keep worrying about this. I don't need to keep trying to understand it because I do now understand it. 
But that's not necessarily a reliable clue as to whether we should stop thinking about something. If we experience that sense of clarity when we don't understand something, then we might stop thinking about it even though we don't understand it. Or worse, we might stop thinking about it even though it doesn't make sense. So we sort of that, ah, I get it now, stops us realising, hold on, there's something wrong here that we should be thinking harder about. And so then the next step is, what if someone tried to deliberately do that? What if Nguyen calls them either a hostile force or an epistemic manipulator, tries to give us ideas that give us those aha moments, that give us a sort of pleasurable, oh, that's interesting, that really makes sense. And they do that because if we have that feeling, then we don't scrutinise too hardly whether we might be being misled or lied to or given an idea that's not quite right. And then he promises he's going to sort of talk about two case studies in the paper that both might do this to us. Uh, Conspiracy theories and bureaucracies, which is a really interesting sort of thing to juxtapose to each other. Yeah, Drew, I'm going to throw two practical examples at you and you can tell me if uh, if it's in the context of this paper. So the first one might be, say say a company has an incident and a particular thing is wrong at, at one of their workplaces, creates some uncertainty about, oh, I wonder if we've got this problem at all of our other workplaces. So we might just uh, ask all of those other workplaces to do a check, come back and tell us that that's done, everything's fine, and we can stop worrying about that issue in our company anymore and kind of move on. Is that kind of a bit, I know it's a very practical tactical thing, but would that be a little bit how we might think about this idea of, oh, once we become clear, we 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 don't worry about something anymore? I wouldn't say that is exactly the same. So that's certainly an example of deciding that we can stop thinking about something. The particular mechanism he's talking about, though, is a moment of understanding that tells us to stop thinking about it. So what I would suggest is take that same example, but throw in a psychological concept that we encounter while we're doing our investigation. And say we're sort of trying to look at what's going on. You Why did that person do that? And then it occurs to us, oh, they lost situation awareness. And we've got an explanation that suddenly makes sense. Oh, if we think about this in they sort of lost where they were in space and time, suddenly it will make sense. Why did they do it? How did this happen? We get that pleasurable feeling. Oh, okay, we've explained it. We understand it. And now we don't need to investigate further. We don't need to, for example, see if the procedure was wrong or the equipment was wrong because we've had that moment of clarity that we fully understand it. Great. Thanks. No, I like that. We might save the second one for, for a little bit later. Um, Drew, you've got a reference here to, to Google Studio C, Practical Philosophy on YouTube uh, for an opposite effect. Oh, okay. So, David, I did exactly the same you did. Is I read this summary and I'm immediately trying to think of all of the like examples I can think of that like fit this nice, neat pattern. And, and one, of the, one of the ones I did that I'll refer our listeners to was this is the like exact opposite effect of the creation of uncertainty as a way of paralyzing people. And so if you look up, uh, there's a comedy group called Studio C. And I'll just give you the very brief introduction to this sketch. Has a group of bank robbers emerge inside a vault and they hit the last layer of the security system, which is a philosopher sitting at a desk. And I'll just leave that to you (laughs) to go go and look up the rest of the sketch. But yeah, I was immediately sort of thinking, there's lots of those things in life where we sort of hit a moment of uncertainty and it stops us taking action. We're not sure what to do next. And then we have those other moments where we have that really blinding sort of, aha, I get it now, that means we can move forward, but it also that means we've closed things off, that we've stopped investigating. I think, is it Decker who sort of in one of his human error books, sort of like finding that sort of your final clue in the investigation? You know, we think we've found that missing piece. We've found the thing that says, ah, this person did it or yeah, And it's not just that we think we've finished, it's that we get that almost pleasurable moment of understanding that really sort of like tells our brain we've finished. Yeah, I think it might have been Sydney and either he's in the Understanding Human Error or, or his Drift Into Failure book where it talks about the almost the same as the title of this paper, that seduction of root cause, that idea that I found the broken part of the system and I fixed that and perfect. The world is now exactly as I want it to be. So I'll just put a direct quote from the paper just to finish off this discussion. So this is in the author's own words. He says, Our sense of clarity and its absence plays a key role in our cognitive self-regulation. A sense of confusion is a signal we need to think more, but when things feel clear to us, we're satisfied. A sense of clarity is a signal that we have for the moment thought enough. So that's really sort of like what he's getting at with this 
first idea of clarity. And then he's going to expand that a bit further later in the paper, and we'll talk about the expansion of it for now. But David, I'll throw in one more example that I was thinking of when I heard this, which is the idea. This is a set of research they did trying to work out whether sort of good lecturers result in better students. And the way they basically did this study is they had students watching a really polished lecturer and students watching someone who was like bumbling, stuttering, reading from their notes. And what they found was that, and I I do want to acknowledge that this is sort of limited in the scale of the research they did. I don't think that these can be considered finalized findings. But basically, they found that student satisfaction scores are sometimes inversely related to how students do in future classes. So the idea is that the really polished person leaves the students going away thinking, oh, that was great. I really understand that. That was crystal clear. But then they stop thinking about it. Whereas the confusing teacher, the student goes away thinking, didn't quite get that. And they do their own work. They do their own thinking and end up as better students and better informed for it. So Drew, how do performance evaluations go at the university now? When So when you've got your result where you get like one out of five um, on your student evaluations, you can just go to the faculty and just say, I'm just making better students for the future. D- David, I'm a little bit embarrassed about this. So I'm a pretty good public speaker. I've got no idea what I'm like as a teacher because we don't have good ways of measuring it. But I know I'm good at that sort of glib, hey, Drew's put on a show, things seem clear to me. And so I get really good student satisfaction scores. And I'm in that like embarrassed position of the university hierarchy comes down and pats me on the back and says, Drew, you had a couple of courses where you got perfect student satisfaction scores. Well done. Here's an award. And I've sort of got to write an email back saying, look, thank you for this. I acknowledge that you're talking about this. These scores are bunk. Don't do this. (laughs) Yeah, that, that tension between someone is like, recognizing you for something that you know is just it's bullshit it's just it means nothing it we you know even so uh, no i have to throw this in here because it is important it's not just that student satisfaction scores don't correlate with student performance it's that we know student satisfaction scores are systematically biased away from women and minority teachers students give on their qualitative feedback, they give white males like, you know, smart and intellectual, and they forgive us for bad teaching because we sound really smart. But what they expect of female teachers and minorities is they expect them to be sort of kind and compassionate and helpful and these impossible standards of this person will look after me and they mark them lower. So, Basically, I can get higher scores for doing less work to actually help the students than someone else. So then they're not just, you know, bad reflections of teaching. They are really, really bad ways to evaluate how much someone is contributing to their own students sort of across all of the things that are expected of teachers. That's that's getting a little bit off topic. I just since you joked about it, I had to throw in the real message there. Look, I think I think I think systematic bias is is really important, particularly in relevance to this paper about seductions of clarity. Like it's very easy for us to just think that those teacher evaluations are a good and true reflection of teaching. You know, the, the quality of the, the the teaching. And I guess when you you know when you were starting to give that um I guess overview as well, I was just yeah, reminded of incident rates and safety and a lot of things that we do in organizations. So I think that um that's directly relevant to what we're talking about talking about today. Yeah, no, good point. We might actually back reference back to this when we talk about the bureaucratic side of it, because he does talk about some of the reasons why numbers like student satisfaction scores are so attractive to bureaucracies. Yeah. So Drew, this idea of uh, aha moments. So, you know, this this these points of clarity when we make sense of the world, and particularly if we might have been thinking hard about it or struggling with it, it's like, Eureka, we've We've solved it. Yeah, so, so this, this David, uh, is the first point I became a little bit suspicious of the paper. And I'll, I'll say, I'll give the full message up front just so I'm not sending mixed messages. I love this paper and I love the ideas in this paper. And I think that's when you've got to be most careful about whether it's actually empirically supported. And so I, what I, my like overall conclusion is that these are good ideas that I generally agree with. But we've got to be really careful about exactly how much they do and don't say supported by the evidence. And so what he's doing here is I think he's mixing up two different types of psychological research. And I'll just give you an example of 
how the sort of research works. One of the things they do is they give people what they call insight problems. So these are like thinking outside the box type puzzles. You know, the sort of games where you've got to convert the word six into five using matchsticks and the actual solution is to break one of the matchsticks in half or you know, puzzles like that. And the sort of key things about those insight puzzles are once you find the correct solution, it's obvious. But until you find the correct solution, it's not obvious at all. And those puzzles are used to explore and demonstrate a few different psychological ideas. But one of the things is this idea of an aha moment when you transition from seeing the puzzle one way to seeing the puzzle the other way. And it actually gives your like brain a pleasure spike, a like injection of dopamine. It's something that you can like directly measure that it feels good. But that's not the same as the idea of feeling that you've completely understood something. That's a particular thing, which is with insight problems. The more general idea is about that feeling that you understand something, that it makes sense. And that's not associated with that spike of pleasure. It's just more associated with a feeling of truth or a feeling of satisfaction. So I think both things can be true at once. You know, there are some types of things where you get a spike of pleasure from understanding, but that's actually genuine understanding. That's solving an insight problem. There's this more nefarious one, which is that feeling that something makes sense and thinking that because it feels like it makes sense, it must therefore be more true. So researchers get this. You're trying to wrestle with a problem and now suddenly it sort of seems to make sense to you. Does that mean you've like settled on the right answer or not? Yeah, it's a good... Oh, sorry, I was a little bit sidetracked when you're saying that because I was trying to think, you know, it's not quite solving an insight problem, but um, that spike of dopamine when you're doing something like reading a Where's Wally book or you're looking at one of those magic eye kind of pictures and then you suddenly see what you're, what you're looking for. No, I think that's a perfect example. I think that works in exactly the same way. You know, that feeling that you've solved an insight problem is the I found Wally. Once you've found Wally, you can't unfind Wally again, right? Yeah. You see him there, yeah. he's there. And the magic eye, once you can work out how to see it, you can always do that. But until you do, it's like your brain is really struggling. It really hurts. And then just everything comes into focus. Now, we've already sort of done the reference to safety that you know, we have the same thing with accidents that, you know, until we have that feeling that it makes sense, we're always going to keep looking. But once we get a feeling, oh, we've got an explanation, that explanation makes sense. It feels satisfactory. And that's sort of one of the things that safety theorists do is they try to create discomfort with those traditional explanations. You know, you could argue that one of the things that both Decker and Holnagel do in their work is they tell you, don't be satisfied with an explanation of human error. And if they tell you that enough and you believe them, then you get to the explanation, oh, Bill did it. You don't get that feeling of satisfaction. You feel guilty about it, so you keep looking for a better explanation. Yeah. And, and so, Drew, the author, the author goes a little bit further about um, exaggerated senses of clarity. And do you want to just briefly touch on, touch on that? Okay, so, so this is the next step where he's sort of extending beyond that basic concept and trying to say something deeper. Is he says, okay, we've got this common phenomena that we know about, but there are certain belief systems, certain ways of seeing the world that create an exaggerated and false sense of clarity. Um, he says it happens particularly when we quantify things, when we turn things into numbers. And he says that it can be done either deliberately by hostile actors or by accident through the creation of what he calls epistemically hostile environments. Now, I actually wrote off to Nguyen and I asked him about this because I reckon he is a fan of a series of books by a guy called Charles Stross. And these books are called The Laundry Files. And the books introduce a character who introduces themselves as a combat epistemologist. And now that is such a specific term that I cannot, I find it hard to believe that two people would come up with the exact same term. But that's the term that um, Nguyen uses in this paper without attribution to Charles Stross. Um, he says, these people are like combat, doing combat epistemology. They're using epistemology as a weapon to manipulate the belief systems of other people. Well, it's a pretty strong claim. Isn't that what marketing's all about though? Marketing is about manipulating the beliefs of people. This is about trying to like put in place a whole belief system. So possibly some types of marketing do. Uh, so this is the link back to conspiracy theories. 
Yes. Okay, got it. Um, got it. So I, I'm really reluctant to mention brands here, but I can think of a few <laughs> brands that might fit into this pattern. I'm just going to leave our listeners to drop maybe particular types of phone or particular types of computer or particular. Well, I do would say at risk of offending, just spending spending a bit of time this year in the US, the whole big pharmaceutical advertising machine about the role of medication, the role of medication in human health, just as a general solution to everything. I think maybe fits without being too uh, into too deep into conspiracy theories. Drew maybe fits that whole you know put in place a belief system that uh, we can manage our health through just more and more medication. Yeah, we we might actually be able to test that against some of the more specific claims he starts to make to see whether that fits. Okay, um, I, I suspect it might. This is sort of the point where I think you'll either. Cont- I expect most of our listeners and certainly myself agree with the paper up to this point. Now, the question is, how much do you sort of buy him going a little bit further? So so what he says is, okay, this isn't just about oversimplification. So lots of people will get to the point of saying that, okay, oversimplifying things is irrational. There's always a bit of an appeal to oversimplify. There's a lot of over-motivated reasoning trying to remove the discomfort of uncertainty or cognitive dissonance that leads us towards wanting more simple explanations. But he says, this is something more. And so I think that's the test is, do you reckon that he's telling you something more beyond just that trap or appeal of oversimplification? Which I guess is one of the one of the early five HRO principles drew in complex systems, that reluctance to simplify as a way of actually getting a better understanding of situations. So let's let's see. Let's see what else um, we go into. Because I think I, I remembered a lot, I, I guess a lot of parts of this paper I was drawn to, Eric Holnagel's quote, I think it's 2015, where he sort of said that people need to feel safe and be safe, and sometimes the former gets in the way of the latter, that we uh, we focus our effort on feeling safe, which is this, this point of clarity around safety in our organisation, and maybe we stop doing the work we need to do to actually be safe. Yes, and I think a lot of safety theories sort of talk about that need to move towards discomfort. So we've got we've got that one about reluctance to simplify I've lost the phrasing, David, but I'm sure you can grab it. Oh, co- sort of constant unease or... Uh, chronic unease, which was uh, chronic unease, which was yeah. Hopkins' view of that, which I guess followed preoccupation with failure in some of these things, which is just that, yeah, chronic unease. Let's just call it that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, th- thank you for the reference. Right. So, so, so let, the first one we're going to dive deep into is this idea of clarity as a thought terminator. So why is it that feeling clear stops you thinking further? So we start off with that same thing. It's almost like the same distinction that Holnagel makes between feel safe and be safe. It's the distinction between genuine understanding and a feeling of understanding. That You know, they're separate things. You would hope that they would happen at the same time, but they can happen separately. You can genuinely understand something or you can feel that you understand it, feel clarity. And maybe you, it's, you feel clarity because you genuinely understand or maybe you just feel clarity and you don't understand. So two broad strategies that people use to manipulate other people. Epistemic intimidation, where you make them feel afraid or uncomfortable to think differently. And epistemic seduction, where you make their own brains send positive signals for feeling in a particular way. Um, That's the first point that I actually thought, hold on, does this even need to be a distinction? Because, you know, what is pleasure but the removal of discomfort? You know, removing cognitive dissonance feels good. We know that. So I'm not certain that there's a difference between seduction and intimidation, really. And I don't think that he even needs it for this paper. But David, you've you've thrown in a couple of um oh, examples here. That no, I just I just I was just thinking about, you know, positive mental signals. I don't think it quite fits anymore, but I guess what um this is where the author Newen was sort of leaning on on psychology here talking about like structural weaknesses in human cognition and things like that and i i i sort of got a little bit concerned that the paper was going going quite uh quite a long way into psychological phenomena without sort of really supporting it very well so so what makes it a little bit difficult um and you'll see this if you read the paper yourself is that he's sort of weaving together two arguments One of the arguments is the empirical argument, which is here are the psychological effects that cause this. But the other is his like almost his own conspiracy theory that look how bad this would be if someone 
knew that this were true and tried to deliberately manipulate it. And he switches back and forth between these arguments in a way that sort of makes you fear that he's right as opposed to sort of know that he's well established that he's right. And I almost thought for a moment that he was like trying to deliberately illustrate his own theory (laughs) because he's trying to like generate this sort of sense of understanding through epistemic intimidation (laughs) in his own paper. There are are three sort of lines of empirical evidence, Um, three different effects. Yeah, I'll say up front that all of these things are real psychological effects. So the first one is the idea of cognitive fluency. So this is the fact that people are more willing to accept ideas that are easier to understand. And you get this weird set of like social psychology experiments that do things like show you the same text written in a bad font and ask you, do you agree with it or disagree with it? And the sort of harder you make it for someone to deal with an idea, even just by like writing it upside down or writing it in a bad font or with bad spelling, the less willing they are to accept it. You people don't like you deliberately making them work hard with their brains and they get annoyed at you if you do, and they get annoyed at you, they don't accept your idea. So that's cognitive fluency. So Drew, is that why we, is that why we, we love PowerPoint so much? <laughs> no one wants to read a technical report, a 50-page technical report. They'll show me it in five slides with two bullet points on each slide, please, and make it look pretty and colourful. PowerPoint has been used as a direct example of this, as sort of an explanation of why are people more willing to accept the five-page PowerPoint than the 20-page report, when clearly the 20-page report has got more evidence, more detail than the PowerPoint. People will more willingly accept the PowerPoint because they want ideas to be made simple for them. And their sort of brains see that as more acceptable. And I I think there's a sort of like underlying heuristic here that often, sorry, I'm, I'm actually speculating beyond the evidence myself here, linking things. But a separate piece of evidence is how do we know when people are lying? liars tend to throw in more detail. So one of the tricks is when someone starts to give you unnecessary detail in a story, that is a sign that they are trying to convince you that they may be deceiving you. And people know this, so people's brains go the other way. They think, ah, someone's putting in a bit too much detail here, they're probably lying. Someone's telling the idea nice and simply, they're probably telling the truth. So that's one of the reasons our brains are more willing to accept simple information than more complex information is because we trust the teller who wants to tell it to us simply. And you you get slogans like, you know, if you fully understand an idea, you can explain it in three sentences. Uh, Yeah, that quote, I think there's a quote that if you you can't explain it to a five-year-old, you really don't understand it yourself. Yeah, so so we've, and uh, those are sort of like reasonable heuristics that it is a sort of sign of truth or a sign of understanding that we can explain things simply. But it leads us into traps then that people distrust ideas like um, relativity because... We can't wrap our brains around it. We think if we can't wrap our brains around it, it can't possibly be true. So that, that's where it can lead us astray. So that's sort of one idea. The second idea is the one we've already introduced, is this idea of insight problems and the aha moments that just give us a positive feeling. And the third one, and this is the one that I personally find most interesting, is a thing called cognitive facility. And the idea here is that if we learn something, and that something gives us power to mentally manipulate the world, then we see that as truth of its, as uh, we see sort of that usefulness as evidence of its truth. So, you know, if it's an idea that lets us generate other ideas to link together other things, we're seeing the world in a new and powerful way, that gives us a sense of truth. And David, I immediately jumped to a lot of our own research, which I sort of feel that that's one thing that I try to do to other people. <laughs> is I try to give them like new labels or distinctions that make that help them make sense of the world. You know, safety work versus the safety of work, safety clutter. They're concepts that help you do other things with them. And that might actually create a sort of like misleading idea about the truth of those ideas, whether they're actually real distinctions or not. Because they let you do things, they let you count things, they let you measure things, they let you make sense of things. It sort of leads people into thinking, oh, this idea is useful, I really want it to be true, so we think it's true. So, Drew, these three, these three, I guess, empirical ideas here, cognitive fluency, um, aha, aha moments, cognitive facility, I think they're broad psychological, uh, I don't know if it's phenomena or, 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 or um, representations of, of the world, and I guess linking them together in this kind of like seductions of clarity, sort of all, all pulling us towards us, you know, being much clearer about the world that we live in. So then um, 
Nguyen sort of goes on to talk about echo chambers. So, so, David, just before we do that, I want to pin down to what is precisely the new claim that Nguyen is making. Because I, I think there are two things we need to be clear on here. So the first thing he's doing is, is just he's bringing these three different ideas together and saying, let's call them all the seduction of clarity. So we need to ask ourselves, is that a useful move? Do we gain some new understanding by linking the three ideas and calling them one thing rather than just treating them as three ideas? But the second thing is, remember the very original claim that he's making, which is that humans use the idea of clarity as a way to stop thinking. Has he actually got evidence that this happens? And the answer is actually no. You know, none of these three effects actually demonstrate that particular claim, which is that humans use clarity to know when to stop thinking. That's something that we don't have evidence for. And you would think that if it was a real thing that people would have researched it in psychology and would have psychological evidence that you know, because it's a really interesting question. How do people know when to stop worrying about something? Why do we not have the evidence for that? And actually, all of the relevant research is about whether that feeling of clarity is good evidence, not how much do humans actually use it. So that's the bit. It sounds really plausible. It so seems to make sense. You know, we've given lots of examples ourselves in our discussion, but we don't actually have evidence that it's true, <laughs> that clarity does actually stop people thinking. That's something that is untested and unproven. Um, anyway, sorry, I just wanted to sort of really sort of clarify the limits of the evidence here is because it sounds so convincing and it makes so much sense to us. That's exactly the thing that Nguyen's warning us about. <laughs> we, we should be careful. You know, is it actually true or not? We don't know. It is a great example. I didn't think to, uh, I, guess, I guess maybe because it did feel clear, I didn't think too much about it. But that, that idea that do we stop thinking about something when we, when we understand it and, you know, it becomes clear to us seems like it could make sense. But uh just that it does seem like something that needs a lot more critical thought, particularly if there is not a lot of research or, or no research around that. Yeah, and particularly if the claim is broader than any of those three individual effects, which there is fairly good evidence for. And also in a real life context too, Drew, I guess if the limitations of some of the psychological research, which are typically kind of those lab-based studies where you might give someone a problem and they're thinking hard about it, like the matchstick example, and then they solve it, then you know, you might find in that sort of research setting that they don't think too much about that matchbox problem anymore. But when we think in organizations about, say, safety management, and there's a point of clarity, I think that's a much harder thing to research and understand. You know, do organizations stop thinking about safety just because, you know, an aspect of that, of safety becomes becomes clearer? I don't know if that makes sense. It's a very long stretch to go from, hey, I've solved a matchbox problem to, hey, I've explained an accident and now the organization doesn't have to worry about it. You know, that, that, is, that is a really long stretch to just change a feeling that you have in a lab to when the organization itself actually stops doing something. So, yeah, let's move on to talk about echo chambers. Now, I should point out, he makes this interesting distinction first off between thought bubbles and echo chambers. And he says that as far as he's talking about them, they're different things. So a thought bubble is just where you are in like a social media environment when you never hear the other side. So he says, yeah, that's something that can happen is you only ever hear one side of an issue. You never hear the contrary evidence. But he says an echo chamber is something specific, which is where the reason why you're in that bubble is because you're explicitly rejecting all of the other information. You don't trust it. The information is there. It's available to you. You just refuse to listen to it. So I guess the difference would be, you know, a thought bubble is someone who only watches Fox News and never hears that other stuff is going on in the world. But to make it into an echo chamber, you've got to have, when people try to tell you about that other information, you say, I'm not listening because Fox News tells me not to listen. Got it. And I, I didn't just like decide to pick on Fox News. That's the example he uses in the paper. <laughs> Although I'll happily, you know, pick on Fox News if I get the excuse. Very good. Yeah. Okay, so he sort of steps out his argument and he's talking particularly about, you've probably heard of this guy, Rush Limbaugh, one of the sort of Fox News commentators, very filled with conspiracy theories. Um, so he said, that, okay, the first thing is that it offers this sensation of epiphany, that uh, Limbaugh is revealing secrets to you. And those secrets make sense of the world. Because, you know, why is it that we can have these sincere people who disagree about things? That's not the way the world should be. Limbaugh comes along and says, ah, the reason why that is because one side is good and one side is evil. So the other side's not actually sincere. 
they're just pretending to be sincere because they want to steal your kids. And so, ah, okay, if I see the world like that, that makes sense. And you could see the same thing in someone who tells you that, ah, climate change is all a hoax. And it's a hoax because they want to get money out of you. They want to destroy your world and replace it with their own new, much more woke world. Okay, suddenly it now makes sense. Why are all these scientists talking about climate change? Why are these people advocating for change? Oh, because they're part of this one big conspiracy. That explains it to you. But the second thing is this idea of cognitive facility. So it's not just that you have that one moment of, ah, now I see the secrets, I understand the world as it really is. You've now got this intellectual tool and you can use this tool. You know, you can use Limbaugh's way of seeing the world to look at a new person speaking and saying, ah, now I understand why they're saying what they're saying. You can generate your own conspiracy theories that fit within the pattern because that way of thinking lets you now suddenly interpret other things. And when we have contradictions, when people tell you stuff that doesn't make sense, well, we now know that's because they're lying, because they're evil. So we can resolve the contradictions now because we've got an explanation for why would people say those things. So we've sort of got this self-reinforcing view that it gives us a belief that we're an insider. It tells us not to trust the outsiders. It tells us that any contradictions are the fault of the outsiders trying to deceive us. And it makes us feel clever because we can now generate our own theories, our own thoughts, our own ways of interpreting things. So you're at risk of going too far into like new, you know, into the safety world a little bit. But this idea of, I guess, not as a conspiracy theory, of course, but the idea of like safety differently or something where we've got this this worldview that seems to enable people to make sense of all of the things that they see in the world of safety and they've experienced throughout their career and now got a way of seeing things. And then we can use that to, I guess, make a whole lot of other different types of claims about safety more broadly and reject things and accept other things. And that, that I guess, is a, is a practical kind of worldview in the safety space. Yeah, I, I think that sort of ticks all of the boxes. So I think most people, when they encounter ideas like safety differently or safety too, they have that moment of pleasurable epiphany. It's like, ah, oh, this explains things that I've been struggling to explain, and now it feels good. It lets you explain away contrary evidence. Like the theory itself tells you this is what you should think about lost time indicators. You know, someone comes along and says, but hold on, I'm doing safety the old way, and it's reducing incidents down to zero. The theory tells you how to make sense of that information. It explains away contrary evidence. It says, don't trust that evidence. Don't trust the people saying that. And so... I guess I should throw in the ultimate qualifier here is that at this point, we're not claiming that this tells you whether a theory is true or not, right? It's just telling you that the truth or not is kind of irrelevant to whether you accept it. So you could do this sort of evilly in the case of your QAnon and conspiracy theories, or you could do it in the case of a genuine theory that explains a new part of quantum physics. They would both have the same sort of properties, both give you the same sort of positive feelings, based give you the feeling of being able to do new things in the world. But those feelings don't tell you whether the theory is true or not. And so that's then the sort of next next claim that he's making, is what if people do this deliberately? What if people are deliberately using their knowledge of psychology, their knowledge of the fact that you will accept these things, and trying to manipulate you by getting you to believe in this worldview? And it sort of makes a very seductive sense that he picks conspiracy theories as the first example. Because we know we've got the evidence that a lot of these conspiracy theories are not set up themselves by true believers. right? They're set up by people who are deliberately trying to make money out of creating true believers. Oh, true. Gee, gee, that's a bit of a strong claim for the Church of Scientology. Uh, That's a factual historical claim for the Church of Scientology. I wonder how many people we've offended so far with this seduction of clarity. Uh, To the extent that we've talked about safety theories, I'm sure we've made a couple of people uncomfortable. And religion. I'm not sure how many Scientologists or QAnon believers we've got listening to the podcast, David. I don't know, but higher education bureaucracy, we haven't left much much untouched. Okay, so dear listener, (laughs) if you are a member of the Church of Scientology in senior management at a university and running a business on the side selling drugs through a multi-level marketing scheme... (laughs) then you probably think that we're lying anyway. Don't worry yeah, about so it. It doesn't matter, yeah. <laughs> so I guess I guess Ewan's claiming that I guess people could use this this knowledge that uh, 
that uh, we as people will be um, will feel good when the world is clear for us, when the world makes sense, and uh, and and use that, I guess, against us to further their own interest in some ways. I guess that's what he's he's claiming here. Yeah, and so his sort of goal here is to use the idea of conspiracy theories where it's easy to think about this as being a sort of deliberate evil force doing this to us, to then say, okay, let's move on to things like bureaucracy that don't require a deliberate hostile actor doing it to us. It just needs an environment that is accidentally hostile. So we could create a work environment that does those same things to us, that creates those seductions, that creates those hostile epistemologies as part of the environment we're in. Um, And he's sort of particularly picking on a quantified bureaucracy and drawing pretty heavily on two other works, which I have to admit I haven't read yet, but as a result of this paper, I've gone out and ordered copies. It's a book called Trust in Numbers by Theodore Porter and The Seductions of Quantification by Sally Merry. And he's saying that we're doing that same thing, setting up those same cognitive forces when we try to create things in numbers. And he actually does directly hook in a little bit to that higher education. So this is just a quick quote here. He says, it's much easier to do things with grades and rubrics than it is with qualitative descriptions. We can offer justifications. I averaged it according to the syllabus's directives. I applied the rubric. We can generate graphs. We can make quantitative summaries. And that sense of facility is even stronger in large-scale institutions where the use of numbers has been stringently regularized. And I'm thinking immediately there, David, of lost time indicators. I just think it's graphs graphs and tables and data in general. I mean, all of our listeners, I, I suspect, will experience that in their organizations every day, which is show me the numbers. You know, what's the metric? What's the what's the measure? What's, you know, that's what we do with risk assessments. It's what we do with audit scores. It's what we do with counting safety work. We, it's, it's everywhere. And it makes us feel, feel good. It makes us feel in control. Yeah, and particularly it makes us feel powerful. So, you know, it's it's not the seduction just that it's simplified. It's This is a tool we can manipulate. We can use this number to track trends. We can use this number to create a graph. We can use this number to draw a comparison. Um, and the fact that it's useful to us in those ways convinces of us convinces us of its underlying truth, even though that shouldn't be a reliable guide because we can do that with untrue numbers just as much as we can do with true numbers. So, Drew, some general, do you want to make any sort of general thoughts about the paper and then we'll see if we can make some practical sense of this? Okay, so I guess the most immediate one is that I like the paper because it points out some really interesting ideas and it draws links between some things that I hadn't sort of seen the connections for between. So I think I've already mentioned I've ordered a couple of these references because I want to go back to the original source and read them. He's found interesting stuff to talk about. I'm a little bit suspicious of the way he sort of tries to tie all of these different ideas under the single concept of the seduction of clarity. Yeah, I can agree with the individual ideas, but I don't think the sort of central factual claim tying them together. You, If it's new, then it's not well supported. To the extent that it's supported, it's not really new. It's just linking together things that work quite separately. So I really think that you know, to the extent that it's making new claims, we need a proper empirical investigation. We can't just rely on using argument to link them together. Yeah, Drew, I I, I quite enjoyed the read. It, it's it's not that difficult to read. Uh, it's the, the preprint's about thirty eight pages. A lot going on. There is a lot going on in the paper, though. You, you know, quantification, gamification, manipulation, echo chambers, combat epistemology, um, thought terminators. There's there's a lot. Um, a lot going on in this in this paper, and I'm a little bit like you, Drew. I think pulling all of those ideas together and and pointing toward all towards this idea that you know clarity makes us feel good and then stops us thinking. It's one of those things that de- deities the sort of thing. It, it it feels true true and simple, but I think it needs to be unpacked a lot a lot more than that. But I do think we can make some sort of useful takeaways for safety because I, I do think that some of these claims are really quite both clear and well supported. David, interested to the extent that you sort of agree with these as I go through them? Yeah, let's do it. So the first one I'd say is that just because an idea is useful for making sense of other things, that doesn't mean that the idea itself is correct. So when we have things like, you know, that distinction between safety work and and, uh, safety clutter, 
They provide you with ways of seeing the world and make sense of other things. But that's not the reason you should think that the ideas themselves are accurate and reliable. So, and I think that's always like a neutral judgment. It's not a positive or negative. It's just, you know, don't use the sense of clarity as the way of judging. Find some other way of judging the idea other than that it helps you see the world in a new light. And I think, Drew, the idea in one of the safety differently principles, if safety is not the absence of neg- negative events, it's the presence of positives. <laughs> that helps us see the world in a, in, a, in a certain way and approach safety. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that the absence of neg- negative events means something's unsafe. Yes. You know. And, and, and sometimes with claims like that, you go to sort of like unpack them and you realize that they are unprovable. So they're actually just philosophical claims, not empirical ones. Another one that I'd think of is you know, people are the problem, not the people are not the problem. People are the solution. Sometimes people are the problem. Well, I, I think it's really not even that. It, it's a philosophical position. It's a way of choosing to see the world. It's not true or not true. You can you can decide it either way for yourself. You know, it's not a truth that we should try to apply to other people and say, you know, you should believe this because it's the only way to see things. It's not. It's just a position that you choose to take. Second thing is that. It's important to be able to live with a bit of cognitive discomfort. The world's not actually supposed to make perfect sense. It's a complex, confusing place. And so it's very understandable that you want everything to fit neatly together, but it doesn't necessarily... Sorry, no, I'll go further. It does not help your future learning. It hurts your future learning. I encounter this all the time when people are given like all these different theories of safety and they say, I want a picture that links them all together. (laughs) And trying to draw that picture is really, really hard. You know, you should try to draw that picture. That effort, that cognitive difficulty in trying to fit everything together is worth doing. But whatever you come up with at the end is not going to be perfect and shouldn't feel perfect. It should leave you feeling unsatisfied. It should leave you wanting to learn more. Um, Anytime things seem perfectly clear, probably you're not fully understanding them. Yeah, I like that, Drew. And the third one, and this is, I think, is a big important one, not just in safety, but as a general worldview. Be wary of any type of thinking that gives you an excuse to reject or ignore certain other sources of information. You know, I'm not trying to say that you're obliged to spend time listening to nasty and unpleasant people. You know, no one is obliged to spend time watching Fox News or on the right wing blogs exposing themselves to just nasty, unpleasant stuff. But what you shouldn't do is just jump to the idea that everyone who disagrees with you is evil and not worth listening to. Or in safety, it's probably less that we think they're evil. We think they're stupid. You don't jump to the idea that someone is stupid and incompetent just because they disagree with you. That's probably where the best opportunities for learning are, is find the smart people who disagree with you and find out why they're thinking what they're thinking. Don't use your own labels as a way of rejecting and ignoring that other information. I like that, Drew. That idea, try to use that idea of extreme curiosity. So if you, for example, have a worldview that says, you know, a very safety, differently safety to orientated worldview. And, you know, if someone in your organization comes along and says, we need more audits, we need more rules, uh, you know, not dismissing that, actually being extremely curious as to why you know, that that person might see that as uh, as the way forward. So I think um, being very wary, if, if, we, if we're very clear ourselves, very important that that clarity doesn't reject and ignore things that don't fit inside our, our clear view of the world. David, I'll give you a really quick example of that. Uh, So Yop and I just published our Take 5 paper. And I think our views in that paper are pretty strong. And we've got lots of feedback. And a lot of that feedback is positive. A lot of that feedback is negative. It's very easy to dismiss the negative feedback. And I'll be honest, a lot of the negative feedback we do dismiss because it's clearly stuff that we've already considered in more depth than the people making the criticisms. But we had a guy who has an app doing take five like stuff who asked for a meeting with us. And it was so tempting to just say, oh, this is just another app doing take five, more of the same stuff that we've already talked about, people not being reflective. We decided we'd just take the meeting and listen to what the guy had to say. And it was an hour of just learning interesting new stuff from someone who had really thought about the same problem that we'd thought about, but thought about it from a different direction. And so it's, yeah, it's not whether someone agrees with you or disagrees with you that makes their ideas worthwhile. It's how much they're willing to think about their ideas and to have a conversation that is open to exchange of ideas. Um, And as a result, I hope we're going to have a follow-up to the Take 5 paper 
that doesn't say oh, it's not going to contradict the existing paper, but it is going to have some interesting thoughts as to what do you do next. Great. All right. So maybe we, we tackled take five in episode 95, last episode, and um, maybe in a while we'll, we'll get to do, revisit it. Do you add an extra practical takeaway in here? And I've been doing a bit of reading and I, I, I want to bring a few Kurt Lewin papers to the podcast because I think um, very under-referenced in the safety science literature, but uh, in the early 40s, he basically said that there's no research without action and no action without research. And I guess in reading this paper about the seductions of clarity and stopping us thinking, it's really easy for us to think with a lot of our safety management practices and activities in our organization that they're doing the things that we think that they're doing and and they're working. And I guess what I what I thought here practically is everything that you're doing in your organization for safety, don't be as clear as you might be that it's actually doing what you think. And it needs to be constantly evaluated, interrogated and and consistently tried, you know, to to understand exactly what's going on. And acknowledging that that is a more uncomfortable way of feeling the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. It, it, it does hurt your brain a bit more when you think about things like that. It does. So, Drew, the question we asked this week was, why should we be cautious about clarity? And I think we have an answer for once, simply because the feeling that something makes sense to us is an unreliable way of telling whether it's accurately, sorry, whether it's actually accurate and reliable. Nice one, Drew. So, this idea of the seduction of clarity, it was a, a longer episode for us, but uh, it, was a, it was a long paper. So... But that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com.